Matthew, Matthew chapter 27 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Matthew chapter 27, and as uh, we have been walking through this book uh, for the last couple of years, interrupted a little bit by COVID, uh, we're in the last two chapters, which means we should only have four or five months left. So Matthew chapter 27, I'm just kidding. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read from 1 to verse 32. Uh, Matthew chapter 27. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and says, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, just as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known, notorious prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest out of envy, that they had handed Jesus over to him. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? The governor asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I then do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered him, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head, then put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews! They said, they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. 
Then they led him away to crucify him. How many times have you read or heard or told the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears? Remember that fairy tale? There was a little girl wandering through the woods. She came upon a house. She knocked on the door. No one answered. And boldly, she walked into the house, found it empty. The inhabitants of the house were gone, but they had just left because their breakfast was still sitting on the table. She sampled it, audacious little girl. First bowl, the biggest bowl, was too hot. The second bowl, with flowers embellished around the edge of it, was beautiful, but the porridge in that bowl was too cold. And the third bowl she tried was just right. She went into the living room to explore. She found three armchairs. The biggest one she sat in, it was too hard. The second one she sat in, she just collapsed into the upholstery. It was too soft. And the third one she sat in was just right. She went upstairs. She was still exploring. She found the bedroom. She tried to sample the beds. Odd thing to do when you walk into someone's house, unwelcome. She laid down on the first bed. It was too hard. She laid down on the, soft, on the second bed, and it was too soft. She laid down on the third bed, and it was just right. So right, as a matter of fact, that she drifted off to sleep, only to wake a few hours later, staring into the faces of three very angry bears. Now, that's a story that uh, we all know. Uh, you've heard it many times. And it, it, because of its repetition, it sinks down. And actually, it sinks down deep enough into your mind that you can make some connections about some deeper truths about humanity. Uh, it, that, that's a, a fairy tale that speaks to us. How many of us, let's in the room, we'll figure this out. Some of you, when you live your life, you live your life too hot. And some of you, you live your life too cold. And a few, a rare precious few of you are just right. Think about how you respond to the things that make you angry or afraid. Some of you get loud and big and explosive. You're too hot. And some of you, because you're lazy or you're passive or you're a coward, you're just too cold. Rare is the jewel of a human being who can respond to what makes them angry in the right way at the right time for the right reason. Rare is the person who is angry just right. Well, this is a parable. This is a passage of scripture. Sorry, it's not a parable. This is a passage of scripture where the issue is how we respond not to the temperature of porridge or the comfort of an armchair or a bed. The issue at hand in this passage is how we respond to our guilt before God, our condemnation before God. Are you too hot or too cold or just right? The issue at hand here is, the particular issue, is the death of Jesus. Who's responsible? Whose fault is this? Who's guilty for the death of Jesus? It's not Jesus. The passage makes that abundantly clear. Judas says it. He's innocent. Pilate's wife says, he's innocent. Pilate says, I can't find anything to charge this man with. He's, it's not him. It's not his fault. It's not his responsibility. Whose responsibility is it? Whose fault is it? 
Now, some of you would like to speak with the theological precision that reading the whole Bible uh, gives to us, and we could say, who's responsible for the death of Jesus? And we say, well, this is the fulfillment of the plans and promises of God. He is the one, Jesus was the one who was slain before the foundation of the world. And that would be accurate and helpful and good to think about. Except Matthew's attention here in Matthew 27 is not on God's plans and purposes in crucifying in the death of his son. Matthew's focus is on us. Who's responsible? Whose fault is it? Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Chapter 27 tells us about a number of ways that a number of men and women mishandled their guilt before God. The Bible tells us that Jesus died for sinners. That's an indictment that we cannot escape, but it is a truth that is often mishandled. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to think about three participants in this account and how they mishandled their guilt. It's instructive because we see here uh, the ways in which we often mishandle our responsibility before God too. So let's think about these three um, uh, participants. We'll start at the end with Pilate. And what strategy does Pilate use for responding to his condemnation before God? Denial. Denial. Uh, Pilate, when Pilate is first introduced to us in verse uh, 2, uh, it calls him a governor. That's not quite the right word. Uh, the word translated governor here in, in my text is the Greek word from which we get our English word hegemon, hegemony. Um, uh, Pilate was most specifically a prefect, and a prefect was a military man who was given uh, responsibility over a particular province uh, or area in the Roman Empire, a particularly troublesome province, and Judea was a troublesome province. Uh, Pilate has been the prefect of Judea since AD 26, when he was appointed to that position by the emperor Tiberius. And by most accounts that we have of him outside of the Bible, Pilate was a shrewd, a brutal man who was often in conflict with the Jewish leaders. He liked nothing better than to uh, annoy those uh, pretentious Jewish religious leaders. Now, in this scene, though, he appears to be unusually weak, unusually cowardly. Uh, it probably because there was some event uh, that we, we, we have records of uh, that, that, was, uh, that caused for Pilate a little bit of a political crisis. He's feeling vulnerable in this situation, in his position. So he's trying to be at least a little accommodating and not and nearly as brutal as he usually is. What do you think? Does Matthew lay less blame at the feet of Pilate for Jesus' death than anyone else? Well, he certainly fares better than the religious leaders, but... but Think about what we know that Pilate knows. Verse 18 tells us that Pilate knew why Jesus had been handed over to him. He says he knew it was out of self-interest, out of envy, your text might say. Verse 23 tells us that Pilate couldn't identify a crime. Even after the investigation and all the accusations from the chief priests and the religious leaders, Pilate couldn't identify a, a crime that he committed. Verse 15 tells us that he tried to get out of sentencing Jesus to death. He tried to escape this using a custom that we have no records of outside of the Bible, but that seems like something reasonable. At holiday time, we'll release a prisoner. One prisoner is a symbolic token of Roman mercy. 
Pilate's plan here, he has a plan, he knows he has to do this, and his plan is to put before the people a choice between someone they're gonna hate and someone that they really should love. I mean, it's it's clear who they're gonna pick, right? Pilate is convinced. He puts Barabbas up there. Now, my translation says that Barabbas' first name is Jesus, your translation might not say that. We're not sure if that's accurate and if that belongs, if his first name really was Jesus or not. It's, uh, it, would be, it would be just like God to do something like that. Like, like it, it would be very providential for God to, to do that, but we're not sure. And Barabbas was uh, well-known, my translation says, yours might say notorious. Uh, he was um, an insurrectionist. He was committed to the violent overthrow of the Roman government. That was probably Pilate's mistake. Like, to Pilate, Barabbas is the bad guy trying to overthrow violently the Romans, but to some in the crowd, he probably was a little bit of a hero, freedom fighter. But violence is violence, and if we can get violence off the street, we're all going to be better. So he puts up Barabbas. Do you want Barabbas, or do you want Jesus? I mean, the guy who miraculously heals your children. Who, who do you want? He's hoping that they'll choose Barabbas, and, or choose Jesus. And then, it, uh, sorry, I mean, sorry, religious leaders, the crowd has spoken. Can't do anything about it, <laughs> right? He's trying to get out of this because he knows this isn't right. Now, we're supposed to see the broader significance in these events. I'm, Pilate did not, I'm sure. We're supposed to as we read the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the, the scriptures tell us that on this Friday, three men were crucified, Jesus at the center, and then two other men with him. And because of the way our Bibles have been translated, we often talk about the two thieves, two thieves, except the New Testament Gospels use the same word to describe those two men that it used to describe Barabbas, insurrectionists. It is highly likely that, that that center cross had already been prepared and as actually Barabbas's cross. That Friday was Barabbas's execution day, and what happened in this account as history unfolds here, Jesus, the innocent one, took the cross of Barabbas, the guilty one. Jesus was Barabbas's substitute. We see that, and we see great significance in that, but uh, Pilate probably wasn't thinking about that. He's just trying to get out of this, especially after the warning of his wife, have nothing to do with this innocent man, have a dream about him. Dreams are important in Matthew. Uh, there's dreams at the beginning of Matthew. The wise men have dreams uh, to, to protect Jesus, and then now this other Gentile woman has dreams about, uh, uh, dedicated to protecting Jesus. Dreams are important in Matthew. And when Pilate, verse 24, sees that he's not getting anywhere, that he, he can't rescue Jesus, he can't talk them out of wanting Jesus executed, he washes his hands in front of the people and says, I'm innocent. And what do we say? We say, no, you're not. No, you're not. Pilate, we know too much. You're not innocent. Um, we know that you're the one who had him flogged what they do before crucifixion. 
Um, it weakens the people. It makes their crucifixion shorter because crucifixion can take a long time. So if we flog them first, maybe they'll die sooner. Pilate, you had him flogged. We know that it was your soldiers in your house that mocked him and beat him. We know that you didn't stand up to the mob. You may try, Pilate, but you cannot deny your responsibility. We, you're, you say, oh, I'm innocent. No, you're not. No, you're not. It's a strategy that uh, many people adopt when it comes to their own condemnation before God. No, that's not, not me. Not me. Don't you know? Don't you know? After all, the Bible is, um, well, it's, it's, it, it has to be exaggerating when it talks about our condition before God. Frankly, it's sometimes impolite in the things that it says about us. It's, it's mildly offensive. And the Bible talks about who we are as people before God, created in his image, loved by him, and yet so far short, falling so far short of his glory. That's a little offensive. I mean, I'm not that bad. The Bible devotes a fair amount of real estate arguing about our condition before God. When it talks to us about our guilt, our condemnation before him, it talks about not just our actions, but our thoughts, our affections, the things that we love and the things that we hate. It talks about the good things that you should have done that you didn't do. It talks about uh, our great a treasonous behavior of dishonoring God. It makes you guilty before God not to give him his due as creator and sovereign Lord of the universe. Fleming Rutledge is a uh, British theologian and writer. Look what she says. She says, how do we measure the size of a fire by the number of firefighters and fire engines sent to fight against it? How do we measure the seriousness of a medical condition by the amount of risk the doctors take in prescribing dangerous antibiotics or surgical procedures? How do we measure the gravity of sin and the incomparable vastness of God's love for us? By looking at the magnitude of what God has done for us in Jesus, the Son of God who became like a common criminal for our sake and in our place. If it was not necessary, God would not have sent his son to suffer the way he did to pay the penalty for our sins. Denying our guilt is tempting, and sometimes it feels necessary to protect ourselves from ourselves, but it cannot be done. Now we move on. We move on to the religious leaders. And what strategy did they endeavor to deal with to, to respond to their guilt? Uh, the religious leaders tried distraction. That was their, their method, distraction. Clearly, they're guilty in this text, right? They conspired, they held a sham trial, they accused Jesus before Pilate, they convinced the crowd to demand Jesus' uh, crucifixion. They're guilty, they're undoubtedly guilty. How do they deal with that guilt, though? Uh, look at their interaction again with Judas in verse 6, uh, chapter 27, verse 6. The chief priest picked up the coins that Judas had thrown into the temple treasury room, probably, and said, 
it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now, we have to think about this fulfilled prophecy here. Fulfilled prophecy is very important to Matthew. Uh, He writes, how many times does Matthew use the phrase, and so was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet repeatedly in the first couple chapters, indicating that everything that happens in the book of Matthew is part of the plan and purposes of God, even this, these events right here in this day and hour. Now, the, the challenge is, there's a couple challenges in understanding this prophecy. Matthew um, says, the prophet Jeremiah said these things, but actually he quotes more from the prophet Zechariah than the prophet Jeremiah. If you were to look, why does he do that? Well, it was common, it's common for the apostles when they're quoting, they, they would put prophecies, uh, words from different prophets together and just name one of them. Matthew does that at other times. It's a challenge to see how this prophecy is fulfilled. What seems to be the common um, circumstance, both Jeremiah and Zechariah in their context mention money and buying a field, but what they have in common here is Israel's choice to reject the leader that God had sent. God rejects, the, uh, the Israelites reject God's appointed leaders and all these other circumstances, money and fields and buying property and potters all fit in that same context. That's, I think, what's happening with the prophecy. But you should be, you should be flabbergasted. I'm sure that's the word that came to your mind. Flabbergasted over what they said about the money. You know, we really can't take this money because it's polluted. It's blood money. And you, you, you think to yourself, guys, you are engaged in an evil plot to have an innocent man executed, and you're worried about the purity of your treasury. What's wrong with you? You heard Judas, what he said. You know what you ought to do? You ought to reconvene the trial, get the Sanhedrin together, put Judas on the stand, and have Judas say he's innocent, and then call the whole thing off. Instead, you're not worried at all about what you're doing to Jesus. You're actually worried about the purity of your own purse. Oh, Jesus was right in what he said about these men. Do you remember Matthew chapter 23? Look what Jesus said about them. It'll show up, I think, in a minute. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I might have a different translation than you have. Well, I'll read from there. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You're concerned about your treasury. You're not concerned about justice. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. That's funny. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. 
Notice what's, what's going on here. They have rules. The Pharisees have rules. They have rules about what you can do with money, treasury money. They have rules, and they're following those rules, and they're very good at keeping those rules. And keeping those rules that they made keeps them from thinking about the cold, hard truths about what they're doing and what they love and how they live. They're distracted. This is the strategy of most religious systems in the world. As long as we keep the rules, we'll be fine. Yesterday, I had an opportunity to watch uh, Army's tennis team play against Navy's tennis team at Annapolis, and we sat in this humongous tennis center. There were six courts. We were on one end, and then the six courts were laid out uh, ahead of us. And there were exciting things. We were sitting right next to court one. There were exciting things happening in court two and quite, uh, court three. Uh, quite a pr- uh, skilled tennis players. It was astounding to watch. But it was so hard to watch what was happening on court two and court three because court one was right there in front of us. If you were down in court six, I maybe looked at you once. But, but it, just, it was impossible to look past what was immediately before us. And you know what? The Pharisees have put all these rules immediately before them and they don't have to think and don't have to look at anything else. This, they're distract, distracted. Greg Tenhousoff wrote a book called I Told Me So, Self-Deception in the Christian Life. And distraction is one of the strategies that we use to deceive ourselves. We can't admit it because then we would be telling ourselves the truth. But it's one of the ways that we deceive ourselves. And, and he says, he, he calls this distraction, he calls it attention management. You choose what you focus on. You manage what you give your attention to to protect yourself from ugly truths about yourself. He, he says, um, uh, th- this is how we handle and manage evidence. We manage evidence that is set before us for our own self-interest, for our own, uh, well, we manage what evidence we pay attention to for our own good. He, he cites a study, a research project done years ago. There were researchers who put together a, a packet of information showing They didn't do this research, but they they made a packet that made it look like there's heavy correspondence between caffeine use and breast cancer. The more caffeine you use, the uh, greater chances of getting breast cancer. Now, they they made that study up, but but they they made it up. And and then they presented, they showed the evidence to a lot of different people, men and women of all different ages. And then they asked the people, how likely, are are you convinced by this evidence? Do you believe that what you have seen is true? Do you know the group of people least likely to believe that there's a link between uh, uh, heavy caffeine use and breast cancer? Women who drink a lot of coffee. Why? Because because it's evidence that strikes them most closely. We have an astounding ability to pay attention to what we have, what makes us most comfortable, what makes us feel safe, what makes us feel good about ourselves, and ignore evidence to the contrary. The religious leaders say, I mean, sure, we participated in the execution of Jesus, but you should see our financial records, they are spotless. Friends, it is highly likely that there are some ugly truths about yourself that you are avoiding. Your friends are kind enough to you, they don't tell you either. 
And, and you're successfully avoiding it because of all the good things that you do. Distraction. Now, let's move on third, and we'll think about Judas, and we come to his strategy of despair. Despair. Remember, uh, Pilate and the religious leaders, when it comes to their own condemnation before God, they're too soft. Judas, on the other hand, is too hard. Not that he denies his guilt, but that, notice, we're going to see this, he wallows in his hopelessness. He wallows in hopelessness. Now, we have to address something that is really important in this text. How did Judas die? How did Judas die? I mention this because if you're sharing the gospel with somebody and the good news about Jesus with somebody and you talk to them about um, uh, the, the, the gospels, they tell us the truth. They always tell us the truth. They, there, are, there are chances that that person, if they know anything about the Bible, will say, yeah, well, how did Judas die? Because don't you know that there's two different accounts and that they're different? How did Judas actually die? Can we trust the Bible? Um, Matthew tells us here that Judas died because he hanged himself. But Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, in the book of Acts actually tells um, a, a story with a different set of circumstances. Let's look, Acts 1, 18 and 19. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. Now, Matthew tells us that the priests bought the field, and Acts tells us that Judas bought the field, but they bought it with Judas's money, so um, that's not difficult to overcome. But look what it says. In that field there, he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. If you ever have to teach a junior high boys Sunday school class, this is the story to choose, right? Okay, how exciting, his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. So how, how, did, how did Judas die? Did he hang himself, or did he fall and his intestines spilled out? Well, I don't think these accounts at all are impossible to reconcile. Um, the most common answer to this that uh, Christians have offered is that um, Math, uh, Matthew's correct in that Judas hung himself, but it's it likely that Judas hung himself over a ravine and he hung himself early in the morning and then the sun rose and there's that dead body hanging from that rope and maybe Judas wasn't very good at tying ropes or, well, sun has a terrible effect on dead bodies. And, and Judas' body was affected by the sun and it fell. And when he hit the ground, out they came. That is a reasonable explanation of why Matthew and Luke appear to have um, a, a different accounts. Uh, neither of them are very detailed about what happened. Matthew doesn't tell us what happened to Judas's body? And uh, Luke doesn't say anything. That he, it doesn't say anything that eliminates the possibility that Judas hung himself. So it's not irreconcilable differences. But Alistair Roberts says we should actually ask a different question. We should go beyond the question of are these different to why? Why did Matthew emphasize different things than Luke did? And why? Why did Matthew tell the story here and Luke told the story, right, right near the death of Jesus, and Luke told the story of Judas, the account of Judas' uh, death, right before the apostles replaced him on the 12? Why, why did they put him in different places and why did they emphasize different things? Well, um, here's what Alistair Roberts says. 
Both Matthew and Luke want us to think about Jesus' connection to King David in the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, uh, Jesus is David's great, 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 great grandson. He is, uh, um, his life in many ways parallels David's life. And in 2 Samuel chapter 15, it tells us that, the Bible tells us that King David's son, Absalom, rebelled against his father. And one of David's closest advisors, a man by the name of Ahithophel, joined David in his rebellion against uh, a David. The rebellion in the course of time fell apart and uh, Absalom's forces were defeated. And Ahithophel, when he saw what was happening, went home and hung himself. One of the only occasions in the Bible of hanging besides Judas. Absalom was uh, riding his donkey through a forest and his hair got caught in a tree and he was hanging from a tree and died when they came upon him and stabbed him. So in this scene in King David's life, there are two men hanging from trees, both dead, one of them a traitor, Ahithophel, and one of them a faithless son named Absalom who rebelled against his father. Now compare that with what happens here in this scene in Matthew chapter 27. There are two men hanging on trees, one of them a traitor, Judas, who hung himself, and then the Lord Jesus, not a faithless son, but the faithful son of David who dies in obedience to his father. You're supposed to see that in, in the book of Matthew and think about this. Now, Luke emphasizes something a little bit different. He wants us to think about David in, for a different reason. David uh, decided, 2 Samuel tells us, that David decided during this conflict with uh, um, Absalom that he was going to replace his general, the general of his troops, a man by the name of Joab. And uh, so David appoints Amasa. Amasa, you're going to be the general, the leader of my troops, and I'm going to fire Joab. Joab doesn't want to be out of a job. So one day he sees Amasa, and he, he welcomes Amasa. He kisses Amasa, and while he's hugging him and kissing him, he pulls a knife out and stabs Amasa in the stomach and uh, splits him open, and Amasa falls to the ground, and his intestines fall out. It's one of the only places in the Bible besides Acts 1 where someone's intestines falls out of the ground. David, before he dies, meets with King Solomon, and he says to King Solomon, listen, uh, Solomon, you're going to be king after me. I'm about to die. Joab has got to be replaced. He's treacherous. You've got to replace him with somebody else. Solomon does. He replaces Joab, and then uh, the spirit of wisdom comes down upon Solomon, and then what does Solomon do? He builds the temple. All right, now we go to the book of Acts. What happens? There's a man whose intestines spill out. He's associated with a betrayal, betraying kiss. And uh, what do the disciples decide to do? They decide, well, uh, the treacherous one has to be replaced. So they replace him with Matthias in Acts chapter 1. What happens next? Acts chapter 2, the spirit descends. And what happens? By the spirit, they build the people of God in the Bible called the temple. See, why, why do Matthew and Luke tell these accounts differently? The, the gospel writers are not foolish men. They're not um, confused. They are, uh, the, the, the Bible is written on repeated patterns. And the different aspects of this account are not a contradiction, but they're a theologically shaped response to these historical events. 
So next time when someone says, how did Judas die? You say, well, it's wonderful you asked that question because let me tell you about King David. Now, that's, that's important. More important for our purposes this morning is I want to think about the shame of Judas. Verse 3 says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. Why? Maybe he didn't think the religious leaders would take it this far. <laughs> More cynically, maybe he's upset that he only got 30 pieces of silver for something that they were going to do so nefariously. And his response to his remorse is commendable in some ways, but it is lacking, lacking in, in, in other significant ways. He, he confesses his sin, verse 4, I've sinned. And he tries to make amends. But what's missing in Judas's life at this point in time? He, he didn't turn to God. There's no accounting in Judas's life for God's mercy. No accounting in Judas's life for God's grace. Judas has no savior. He's, he's remorseful, but it misses the mark. Paul, the apostle Paul tells us that there is a sort of sorrow that is worldly and not godly. And look what uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. We have to think of the contrast between Peter and Judas at this point in time. Both Peter and Judas committed grievous sins. We don't know much about Peter's response except he wept bitterly. But we can see some of Peter's attitude in John chapter 21. Now, John chapter 21 describes a scene after the resurrection between Jesus and Peter. And it's not the first time that Jesus has seen Peter, but notice Peter's response to Jesus. What does uh, uh, Peter, the denier, do when he sees Jesus? Look at John chapter 21, verse 2. It says, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. That's Jesus' calling card, apparently, with the disciples. Remember, the Bible's fit on, filled uh, with patterns, repeated patterns. Jesus has done a miracle like this before, and he does it now. And then, verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. This is a comical story in many ways. Peter shirking work, right? But notice, it's Jesus, and boom, in the water he goes, and to the shore, he has got to get to Jesus. He must run, he doesn't run, swim to Jesus. To Jesus is where he must go. And contrast that with Judas. He's so consumed by his own guilt that he has no savior to think of. There's no room in his mind and his heart for, for God's mercy or God's grace. All he has is his own despair. What's worse is the spiritual leaders in their, their answer to, to Judas, they say, in verse 
4. What is that to us? What is that to us? What do you mean, what is that to us? I mean, it's, it's everything to you. You're the one who paid Judas. You're the one who conspired. You're the one who's handing Judas over to Pilate. It's everything to you. You're not innocent in this. And then they say, that's your responsibility. You do something about it. What terrible spiritual leaders they are. Uh, Here is a picture of how some of your own minds work when you are confronted with your guilt, your own guilt. You agree wholeheartedly with what the Bible says about you. I have sinned. But you counsel yourself, and the only response to, I have sinned, is that's your responsibility. That's your fault. It's, It's all on you. It's all about you and what you've done, and you have no help, and you have no cross, and you have no Christ. Judas takes his own life. Uh, This is not a passage of scripture that we would use to talk about suicide. Suicide is not an unforgivable sin. Um, There are some churches that have taught that suicide is an unforgivable sin, that if you take your life, then you can't have eternal life. Uh, The Bible does not teach that. It's It's a sin to take a life, including your own. It's not an unforgivable sin. But notice the the, the self-hatred that Judas has here. The self-despair, the hopelessness. He has no cross. He has no Christ. He has no Savior. Uh, We sing a song, a a gospel song every now and then, one of the verses of the, the song at Calvary. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold. Threaten the soul with infinite loss. Sin that is greater, yes, uh, grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge of the mighty cross. How do you talk to yourselves, brothers and sisters, when you are confronted in particular ways with your own guilt? Do you have a cross? Do you have a Christ? Is there a Savior for you? Think for just a minute about how you discipline your children. Is there a Christ in your home when you discipline your children? It's hard to remember this because sometimes you get so mad. They make you so angry. Sometimes, do you focus so clearly on their guilt that that you give them nothing but despair. I remember having uh, puppies come into our house when I was a little kid. We had puppies that would come, and, and there was debates uh, in the literature about how to housebreak a dog. One rule of thumb was uh, that if your dog has an accident in the kitchen, you're supposed to take that puppy's head and point it down into its own mess and say, look what you did. No, no, no. Shame on you. And then... There's other bits of advice that say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't, don't, don't shame your dog. Instead, take, uh, when your dog successfully uh, does its business outside, you're supposed to praise the dog lavishly because dogs are to be praised and not to be shamed. How about in your house? You take your kid's head and point it in the mess they've made and say, no, 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 and pile on them shame upon shame and shame. Is there a cross in your home? Is there any Christ in your home when, when your kids really mess up badly? 
I don't, the balance of this is not easy because you don't want to make it look like Christ is just the, 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 an addition. You know, you're a terrible person. Well, there's Jesus, but you're a terrible person. You don't want to do that. And you don't, you don't want to make it sound like what they've done isn't serious. This is bad, but Christ is so great. It's bad, but Christ is so great. It's hard to get that balance. It's very hard to get that balance. But when your child really messes up, is there a savior? Is there a cross? Is there Christ, a Christ for them? The people in this passage who are the most correct about their guilt are the crowds who say in verse 25, his blood is on us and on our children. This is not an anti-Semitic verse. Some people have read it that way and thought that it was good and right and proper to punish Jews, uh, uh, persecute Jews because they killed Christ. That's not what this verse is. This verse is a reflection of the fact that everyone here, everyone in this chapter is guilty. There's not one innocent person in this whole passage, in this whole world, except Jesus. Except Jesus, he's the only one. There's only one sufficient answer for this sort of condemnation that Matthew 27 brings. It's Jesus. It's not denial. It's not distraction. It's not despair. It's him. God's appointed substitute who was betrayed and condemned and flogged and beaten and mocked and crucified. And it's to him in our condemnation that we all must turn. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we are grateful to you as we read these passages, this, these accounts of this holy work of God in contrast to this vile work of these human beings, this wicked planning and plotting. But Fleming Rutledge is right. How, how do we measure the extent of our sin And how do we know the fullness of your love? You have given your son to be our substitute and our sin bearer. Father, I um, know that there are men and women in this room who are given to distraction and denial when it comes to their guilt, but I am particularly concerned for those who wallow in hopelessness and in despair. And the only words they hear are, Judas says, I've sinned, and the, the religious leaders, it's your responsibility. And, and they're so often inclined to um, set aside, turn from the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy of God, the, the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Remind us that as great as our sin is, we have an even greater Savior, the Lord Jesus. We give you thanks. Help us. Help us to repent wisely and to feel remorse by faith. Help us, oh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.